Here's something about me that you may know. I like food. I, I know you like food too. Um, I also really like food. Try to eat food at least once a day. Um, have a really healthy appetite, and I satisfy that appetite with a number of foods that I really thoroughly enjoy. I have basically the same palate as a four-year-old, Angie would tell you. Ve- uh, fruits, yes. Vegetables, nah. Uh, Lucky Charms, yes. All brand, no thanks. Uh, I haven't, I haven't exactly got a refined, sophisticated palate, but I still think food is good. I like food. But some foods that I like don't feel complete until they have other foods that are like added on top of them. For example, I like potatoes, but I would never eat just a plain, basic, straight out of the oven baked potato. However, melt a little butter on it, now you're in business. Add some shredded cheese and some bacon bits, and things are really kicking up a notch. You, you put some chili on that or some baked beans, and it might become my favorite part of the meal. Or the other day, I went to the Oilers game with Dale. He invited me to, to go to the, the game, and we got supper at the concourse at Roger's Place. I ordered a cheeseburger, just a plain cheeseburger. All I had was meat, cheese, and some mystery pink sauce. Not sure what it was, but it was good. The the burger was good. Maybe not $12 good or whatever it was, but it was pretty good. However, it was definitely lacking. It needed the same thing that my baked potato needed. It needed some bacon, and it needed some cheese, more cheese. It also definitely needed some lettuce for crunch, maybe a little barbecue sauce and mayo. That's my idea of a perfect burger. Take a good food item and and add more delicious food items on top to complete the ensemble. Or finally, there's a food that I really, really like, really enjoy eating on hot summer days, or maybe from Dairy Queen, or even better, from Ramsey's in Westlock. I love a good banana split. I think ice cream... Yeah, that's very appealing to me. I really like ice cream. Bananas are okay, but together... They're magic. It's like alchemy. But even that magic can be improved upon. I love my banana split smothered in, you guessed it, bacon and cheese. No, no, just kidding. No, I'm just kidding because the baked potato and the cheeseburger, no. I'm just kidding. Give me a banana split with vanilla ice cream. Chocolate and strawberry are good too, but I prefer vanilla ice cream topped with chocolate and strawberry sauce. None of that pineapple sauce, by the way. I, there's a few places that put pineapples and pineapple sauce in their banana splits. That's garbage. Nobody likes that. We don't need that. Then I want whipped cream and chopped peanuts, or if you're feeling fancy, almonds. And topping it all off, as the famous saying goes, on top, I want a bright red, juicy strawberry. That's right, a strawberry. <laughs> I always bristle when people say it's the cherry on top because I never prefer a cherry on top of anything. (laughs) Again, I have a pathetically picky palate and cherries don't always make the cut. So give me a banana split topped with strawberries or raspberries and that's the perfect way to finish off an already delicious treat. Uh, A banana split with strawberries on top as the saying famously goes. Well, let's get to our old friends, the Philippians. They are a delicious congregation themselves. They've got all the main ingredients necessary for a healthy, thriving body of believers. They have good theology. They are rooted in in good thinking about who God is. They are alive in the Holy Spirit. They have committed their lives fully to Jesus Christ. They are carrying the cross of persecution for Jesus. And they are a giving, compassionate, servant-hearted, and joyful group of believers. 
They are Paul's crown jewel among the Gentile churches. They got a lot going for them. But as we saw last week, there are threats to this healthy, thriving, delicious community. Threats from outside the church in the form of systematic oppression carried out against them from the Roman Caesar worshipers, their neighbors. There's threats from Judaizers trying to force them to follow Old Testament rules and restrictions. And most prominently, the thing that Paul will spend most of the rest of this letter addressing, there are threats from within the church itself. It's this last threat, this threat of disunity, that Paul now focuses focuses his attention on. If the Philippians are a banana split, they have all the necessary ingredients to make them satisfying and delicious. But the recent news of stubborn bickering and jealous grudges and selfish attitudes shows that they are lacking in one crucial area. They are missing the cherry, or preferably the strawberry, on top that will cap off their effectiveness in bringing glory to Jesus Christ. So they have it all together. They're just missing that thing on top. And it's there. It's just starting to crumble. So let's read chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, to find out what the Philippian church and the Clyde church require to be at their most tastiest. So let's read verses 1 to 4. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We'll stop there. As I mentioned last week, everything about Philippians 1.27 all the way to 2.18 flows from the very first verse in that section, which we looked at last week. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Everything from that last sermon everything from this sermon, everything for the sermon I'll give in two weeks after Rick speaks, and the sermon after that. All of those sermons flow out of that verse 27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He is outlining how we can do that. He's he's showing us how we can live as citizens of our new kingdom in a way that brings honor to our new king. Not Caesar, whom all of their neighbors worship as king, but Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth. He is your new king. So your life should be oriented to bring him glory. And Jesus, he lived in a way that was radically different from anyone else at that time, radically different from anyone else at any time. Jesus' life is completely revolutionary. And I, I believe that very much even today, that a true life lived as Jesus demonstrated is totally radical, totally revolutionary. Because his way is so radically different, people will attack you. That's what Paul has experienced, and he's outlined that for them. And that's what he's saying. I know that you are undergoing the same sort of suffering and oppression, and it's because you are so radically different. The world sees that and hates that. You are a threat to their personal autonomy, to their comfort, to their understanding of how the world should be. You represent a threat to all those things. So the world's going to hate you because Jesus is so different. And that was the vision of last week's sermon. Withstand those attacks like a herd of musk oxen. So circle up and stand firm against those attacks. Build an impenetrable wall of faith. Protect the vulnerable. Stand as one. That's how you can survive in a cold and harsh environment like the Philippians are experiencing. The Philippians, however, and they're it's still relatively minor, but they are feuding, they are bickering. They had begun to allow their line to break. The wolves are starting to get in a little bit. 
Soon their wall would no longer be impenetrable, and the wolves of disunity and selfish ambition would begin to tear them apart. And so, after encouraging them to withstand persecution and suffering, Paul now begins to demonstrate for them the ingredients they need to become as effective as possible in conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. If they are slipping in unity, then Paul will appeal to that unity in a beautiful, commanding way. And really, the beautiful and commanding nature of verses 1 to 4 are somewhat lost in our written word society. I mean, they they had literacy as well, but we are a, a reading the word society. We are readers. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that's a fault of our society, but Paul, he dictated this letter out loud to probably Timothy or whoever. And once the Philippians received the letter, they didn't pass it around one at a time to read the letter. They would put somebody up in front like I'm doing right now, and they would read it probably several times in a row to each other. Maybe Lydia did the reading. Maybe Epaphroditus did the reading. Maybe even the bickering Euodia and Syntyche were the ones, since they were leaders, who did the reading of this letter. But it was in, it was orated out loud, and it was meant to be read aloud to a group of people. The entire letter is meant to be read aloud, and it's not that you can't understand it or appreciate it just by reading it by yourself. Obviously, I'm not saying you can only hear Philippians if I'm reading it to you. <laughs> that would obviously be very arrogant and ridiculous. But it was read, it was composed to be read aloud. As with all scripture, I think it's better to read it together. That was the original intent. And few places in Paul's writing demonstrate the power of reading it out loud better than this passage. Why? Because verse 1 in particular doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It, it doesn't. If you just sit and read it and parse out the meaning of each little phrase, it's kind of empty. You, he's not really saying a lot if you just sit down and read each word for what it means. But when you read it out loud together, as it was originally intended, it's hard to deny how powerful and how beautiful Paul's rhetoric really is. In the original Greek, by the way, this whole verses 1 to 4 was all one long run-on sentence. Just like verses 27 to 30 were all one long run-on sentence. Mercifully, the English translators broke them into several sentences for us so we can better digest it and make sense of it. But in the Greek, verses 1 and 2 literally read, Therefore... And that therefore is important because it connects what, what we just read last week to what we're reading this week. For some reason, the NIV got rid of it. But therefore, if any encouragement in Christ, if any solace of love, if any sharing of spirit, if any compassion and mercies fulfill my joy, then he goes on. But you can hear through repetition that Paul is getting fired up, right? If any, if any, if any, and he's building and building towards something. He's getting more and more impassioned with each stanza. And as they read, as whoever was reading it to the community of Philippians would read it, they would get more fired up as well. That's what it's intended to do. That's the effect of the repetition. It drills into our emotional core. It's a powerful start to his argument, meant to be spoken in an impassioned manner. If we just read it dryly, we're missing how he's ramping up to something. But the problem is we don't really know what he's talking about in that opening verse. It's a lot of ice cream, but there's no crunch to it. Nothing you can sink your teeth into. Are the encouragements and and solace and sharing that he's mentioning intended to emphasize Christ's work in their lives? Or does it come from the common life that the Philippians have enjoyed together in Jesus? Or is he emphasizing the relationship that they have had with Paul in their shared journeys together? Where does the encouragement, solace, where do those things come from? 
We don't know because Paul's not clear. One commentary I read said that Paul is deliberately being Trinitarian here. Trinitarian meaning highlighting the Trinity. So you've got first Christ, encouragement in Christ, then solace of his love and love being a stand-in for God, and then uh, unite unity in the Holy Spirit. So the, and then he kind of says the compassion and mercy are the things you get from those three. That's how he interpreted it. Another commentary I read stated, it seems like maybe he's basing this plea on their shared experience together, since he's worked so hard to outline how from his life, they should model their lives after his life. So it's a very shared thing. In the end, we don't really know the nature of the relationship between all these beautiful blessings for faithful servants that Paul mentions in verse 1. We don't really know what he's talking about. But you know what? That doesn't diminish the passion or the purpose of verse 1 even a little bit. We don't really know what he's saying. It may be just pure rhetoric, but it's pure nonetheless. And it's beautiful and it's powerful. Having just finished speaking of persecution and suffering, it makes sense that Paul would remind them that part of being citizens of heaven, as verse 27 implies, includes the blessings of encouragement and comfort and commonality and compassion. It makes sense that if he's addressing if he's addressing all those issues they're facing, that he would then turn and say, but look, don't you have any encouragement from Christ? Don't you have any comfort in his love? Don't you have any commonality together in the spirit? Don't you have any compassion and mercy that you have received from God and now can then share with one another? Don't you have that? Don't you remember who you are, my brothers and sisters? Isn't your identity a shared one? Well, of course it is. And doesn't that mean something? Well, of course it does. And that's when Paul drops a command on them that carries extra heft to it because he's just emphasized all these shared blessings. And he says, then make my joy complete. That's why he builds this rhetorical. We don't really know what he's saying, but we know the point of what he's doing. He's building up. Don't you have these things? Don't you see them? Don't you know this is your identity? And if you do, well, then I have a command for you. Make my joy complete. If all of those things are true for the Philippians, then each one of them is a delicious ingredient in the banana split. Encouragement in Christ, that's the ice cream. That's the base layer. Solace of love, that's the bananas. It's not a banana split without bananas. It's not Christian experience unless there's God's love in it. Sharing of the Holy Spirit, that's the delicious flavored sauces. It's missing it if you don't have the Spirit. Compassion and mercy, well, that's chopped nuts and whipped cream. But for Paul, there's still something missing. He says, make my joy complete. That doesn't mean he has no joy and his joy is dependent on what the Philippians do. It means he already has joy. He's made that very clear in chapter one, right? He's filled with rejoicing for the suffering. He's filled with rejoicing for his imprisonment. He's filled with rejoicing for how the Philippians are doing. He already has a lot of joy, but it's not complete. Just like the banana split is not complete. It needs something above it all to finish it off. It needs the cherry or strawberry. And know this, Paul doesn't command them to make his joy complete just because he's self-centered and arrogant, as if their whole job is to make Paul's joy complete. He doesn't say that to be like, hey, you should be focusing on what I think of you. Obviously not. Paul only wants them to be mindful of what Jesus thinks of them. So instead, he's not showing arrogance here, like they should be worried about how Paul's feeling. Instead, he's demonstrating the deep well of pastoral love that he has for the Philippians. He's showing that he is so wrapped up in and engaged in the health of his beloved converts in Philippi 
that their incompleteness is his incompleteness. When they are missing something, he's missing something too. When they're hurting, he's hurting. He's wrapping himself up in, in their issues. And what is the thing that makes them incomplete? What is the thing that they are lacking to tie the whole rest of their delicious identity together? What would make the Philippians fully satisfying to Paul? And more importantly, what would make the Philippians fully satisfying to their Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it's not exactly hard to understand what Paul's pleading for because in verse 2 he again uses the rhetorical device of repetition to drill it into their brains. He says, make my joy complete. How? By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So it's quite obvious that the cherry missing from the top of the Philippians banana split is unity. It's very obvious that the thing they need to finish off their tasty service for Jesus Christ, the thing that they is beginning to crumble, the thing that's beginning to melt away, is their unity. Unity is the missing ingredient that will top off the wonderful tasty delights that Paul has just highlighted for them and for us. First of all, what does this unity look like for the Philippians and for us? When Paul pleads for them to be like-minded and of one mind, he kind of bookends those things with the mind. Be like-minded, same love, one spirit, and one mind. When he speaks of being like-minded and of one mind, does that mean they need to agree on everything all the time, on every single issue? Is that what it, is that what it means to be like-minded? No, I don't think so. Nowhere in any of Paul's writings does Paul argue that becoming a follower of Jesus means adopting a standardized set of beliefs about every issue under the sun. Certainly there's things you need to accept and appropriate in your faith to have any faith that is Christian at all. Like, for instance, the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he is king, that we are subjects to the king. Those are some pretty foundational base level things. But Paul doesn't say you need to agree on everything all the time. In fact, he he allows for, he accommodates their differences of opinions. He says things like, stop quarreling about that. Put aside bitterness and fighting. So he doesn't say be perfectly aligned. In, in, he doesn't say that. He just says stop fighting about it. There is room for difference of, of opinion under the banner of Christ on a lot of things. You can vote differently than your neighbors. You can pray differently than your neighbors. You can have varying opinions about how to spend money or how to understand Genesis 1 or whether Christians should drink or dance or preach barefoot, as I do sometimes, or what songs we play in service or what color we paint the downstairs kitchen or what what fruit is the best kind of topping for a banana split. We can have different opinions on that critical issue. Maybe you're a traditionalist and you like your cherries. Maybe you're a weirdo and you want kiwi or guava or some weird thing. Maybe you are a clear-thinking, intelligent individual and you prefer strawberries or raspberries on top. Whatever your opinion, whatever your difference of opinion, we can have different opinions on all these things. We can. That doesn't mean those opinions are unimportant. It doesn't mean those issues are unimportant. It just means we can be different from each other on each of these topics and still be like-minded. Because the like-mindedness that Paul is speaking of has nothing to do with lesser issues, even though they're important. And it has everything to do with the bigger picture. We talked about the bigger picture a few weeks ago. What is the bigger picture? The bigger picture is the gospel of Jesus Christ, of bringing him glory. That's the bigger picture. We are not just of one mind. 
If we were just of one mind, then we would need to think alike. But we are more than just of one mind. We are also of one soul. We are of one spirit. We are of one love. That means faith is more than just what we think about certain issues. Our faith is more than just a set of beliefs. We can differ on some of these beliefs as long as we don't differ on the big picture. We need to be of one mind, also of one spirit, also of one heart, also of one soul. Following Jesus is more than just downloading a preset series of opinions and theologies. It's more than that. If we are to be truly like-minded despite our differences, it will take some work. Like-mindedness doesn't mean we agree on everything all the time. It means our minds are focused on the same thing, ultimately, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dave, you had something? Well, it's a problem in in the church for forever. It's disunity, and that's one of the reasons why we have so many different churches, and we've had people leave this church Mm -hmm. because they don't agree with something. And, but I always try to think of Paul talking about love, like love is number one in the person being against God, love covers all that. And For sure. It's not worth disagreeing and, and leaving them. Yeah, well, it's okay to disagree. Like, I think that's what we need to come, like, it's okay to have a difference of opinion. I I did the lesson for ABC. It was about Jesus calling the disciples. One thing that's cool about the disciples is they were not all the same type of guy. I mean, a lot of them were fishermen, but Peter and Andrew, Peter was like, uh, get your face right in it kind of guy. And Andrew was a step back encourager kind of a guy. The disciples included a guy who was a anti-Roman zealot, who was part of a movement that sought to overthrow Rome. Another guy was a tax collector, meaning he worked for Rome against his people. One wanted to work against Rome for their people. One wanted to work against their people for Rome. And Jesus brought them together. You get 12 guys in a room, any room, and if they can get along for longer than eight minutes, then that's a miracle. And Jesus had 12 guys, 12 very different guys following him around all day, every day, and he made it work. The Philippians, they were not a bunch of guys who were exactly the same. There was wealthy people, there were slaves, there was regular common folk. These were very different people. We, I tend to think of these places as they're all one kind of, one kind of person. They're not. They're just like you're not all one kind of person. The church is made up of very different people. In fact, it takes a miracle of the Holy Spirit, I think, for this unity to work, to be like-minded, to be of one heart, soul, spirit. That's a miracle. Because people, including myself, we're fiercely defensive of our opinions and usually completely incapable of setting those opinions aside to see eye to eye with someone. This week, I got into an argument with a five-year-old kindergartner because (laughs) as I was reading the morning message, he kept arguing with me whether I was pointing to a B or a D. I said, this is a B. He said, no, it's not. Yeah, this is a, this is a B. This is baby Ben. Buh, buh, buh. Now that's a D. And he fought with me over and over about whether it was a B or a D. Now I am a grown man. I have been reading for 30 years now. I wrote the dang morning message. I know what it says. Yes, he is very Dutch. <laughs> Andrew. Very Dutch. 
but I was very baffled by this whole encounter. You're trying to tell me, you think you know better than me? It's, 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 that's how humans are. We can't lay down our opinion, no matter how wrong we are. We stick to it. Yes. It was a draw. I, I can't say that I won because, as I said, okay, let's move on. He went, it's a B. <laughs> Fine. But, what's that? Yes, just, okay, you know what? You'll learn one day. But that's how humans are, especially Christian humans. So yes, the ability to be like-minded despite having different opinions is a miracle. If Jesus could hold those 12 guys together, that's the Holy Spirit and nothing else. Now, oh, I skipped this quote. Hmm. I like that quote. Where did I have that quote? Hmm. Yes, this was about like-mindedness. Sorry, let's see if I have that somewhere. I think I just plain skipped it. Hmm. Well, um, it all Paul's hinging all of unity on humility. By what it says in verse 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. He says, unless you have humility, unless you care about other people more than you care about yourself, you can't have unity. But humility is an easy concept to misunderstand. A lot of people hear humility and they think of false modesty or this sort of self-demeaning sense of valuelessness, as if you're unimportant, as if to be humble means you don't think you're of any worth whatsoever. But that is not a biblical sense of the word humility. True, humility has to do with lowliness. That's absolutely true and sacred. Our society doesn't like that. We are all about pride and upward mobility. Be your own hero and and all that kind of stuff. But our society is broken and doomed. So just because that's what they value, don't value just don't value just what our society values. Instead, our lowliness is not rooted in a lack of value or a small self-image. Humility doesn't mean you devalue yourself. It means you properly value yourself. Humility in scripture calls for us to pursue the lowliness that comes from being a creature standing before the creator, a child before his father. It's that kind of lowliness. It's a lowliness that knows you are loved and you have worth and value. Creators don't create garbage. They create what they value. And that's absolutely true of our creator, who even stamped us with his image when he created us. He says, you are like me in this special way. Humility is the proper estimation of one's true worth and the proper estimation of every other creature's true worth. Because there's two parts to this. Humility is about understanding who I am. And in understanding who I am, then we begin to better understand who each other are. I I only really can begin to understand your worth if I properly understand my worth. And on the flip side of that, I can only understand my worth in light of your worth. Because they're tied together. They're intrinsically tied together. Humility means being fully aware of our own sinful fallenness and broken weaknesses, while also at the same time being aware of our extreme value in the eyes of our God, who stamped us with his image and who sent his son to die and conquer death for us and who places glorious eternity in our weak, pathetic, tiny, dirty little hearts. He does all of that for us. And not just for me. He didn't do that just for Chris Lance. He does that for all of us. We are on the same ground. True humility 
is childlikeness. It means putting our faith in our Heavenly Father rather than our own feeble selves. It's trusting Him like a child trusts his dad. A good dad. Because he is a good dad. And who's more valued to a father, a good father, than his children? That's what Dennis's whole communion message was about. Who's more valued to a father or a grandfather than a child? Now, a child is a humble person, or should be. That grade five are fighting with me. wasn't being very humble. <laughs> a child is, to be a child is to be a humble thing, a small thing, but a deeply, deeply beloved thing. And that's what we are. That's where our humility comes from. It knows we are low, but there's glory in lowliness. In fact, in two weeks when I preach the next passage from Philippians, it's all about how Jesus, how great he is, became very low for us. If Jesus can do that, I'm pretty sure we can do that too. So humility is not about having a low self-image. It's about having a proper self-image. And to be more accurate, it's not about having a proper self-image. It's about having a proper image of all people. That's true humility. True humility knows our own value in light of the fact that all humanity shares the exact same value. No matter how broken, no matter how corrupt, no matter how sinful, all humanity has the same value in the eyes of our God. I am no more or less beloved by my Father than anyone else in this building or this village or this country or this genetic makeup known as humanity. I am of no more or less value than anyone else. That is very humbling because I think I'm pretty great. You think you're pretty great. It's human tendency to think we're pretty great. But we need to be knocked down a few pegs. We need to know that we're no more or less great than anyone else. That is why humility leads to unity. Uh, I skipped a whole page. What is going on here? <laughs> I'm honestly completely baffled. Because this is these are all good points I wanted to make. And I don't see where I'm making them here. Uh, where is this? I'm... I'm missing a whole page. Sorry, just give me a second. I think I'm... I'm. Oh, here it is. Okay. Well, um, I don't really know what to do now. Talked about humility way before I was supposed to. Okay, so here's what we'll do. Go back to where I said it's a miracle that, that people can be united. Like, talked about the kid fighting with me. It's human tendency. To, it's hard to lay down our opinions. It's a miracle. So how is this miracle accomplished? How are we able to be united despite key differences in important matters? Well, by what it says in verse 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. For to finish off this delicious treat, the cherry on top is unity. But unity requires hard work, requires Humility, forgiveness, selflessness, genuine care. Those aren't things that are valued by our world. In our culture, I think humility is seen as a weakness. Do you get that sense too? That to be humble is to be pathetic and not something to be striven, striven, not something to strive for. Um, Forgiveness is given less value than vengeance. People want vengeance not to be forgiven or to give forgiveness. And our entire civilization is predicated on capitalism individualism, consumerism, which are the opposites. They are antithetical to selflessness and care for others. Our capitalist system is designed for the rich to get more rich and the poor to stay poor and get more poor. 
It's the opposite of what Paul's describing. Um, without humility, without looking out for the interests of others, we can't be of one mind, one soul, one love. The, the problem that Paul sees in the Philippians is that their quarrelsome tendencies reveal a sad lack of care for the needs of the people around them. They are becoming more willing to bicker than bless each other. They, they'd rather spat with each other than serve with each other. If they cannot pray because they're too busy posturing, well then vanity and selfishness are the wolves already hunting the herd and undermining their healthy witness. Selfish ambition and arrogant vanity stand in stark contrast to this what this whole passage is about, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Vain conceit, thinking you're better than you actually are, is antithetical to humility. It's also antithetical to conducting yourself as a kingdom subject. It's the opposite. Selfish ambition, getting into Christianity just to get more of something, whether it's more blessings, more money, whatever it is, is antithetical to looking out for the interests of others. So humility and selfless care for for others are exactly the kind of conduct that indicates your kingdom citizenship. As we'll see in a few weeks when we study my favorite passage in Philippians, Jesus was the ultimate model for this revolutionary attitude of servant-hearted humility. But for now, Paul contrasts the ugliness of selfish ambition and vain conceit with having a proper kingdom perspective of who we are and who our neighbor is. And that begins with humility. And that's where I was supposed to tell you what humility is. Lowliness, but having a proper estimation of ourselves. It's not having a low self-image. It's having a proper self-image and a proper image of who we are together. That's where I was supposed to talk about that. But anyway, um, true humility knows our own value in light of the fact that all humanity shares the exact same value. I am no more less beloved by my father, no more or less beloved by my father than anyone else. And that's why humility leads to unity because it focuses, or it forces me to focus less on myself and more on my neighbor. It makes me think less of myself and think more of other people. It focuses us it recognizes that your worth is equal to my worth. And that creates a bond, I think. It forces us to view each other on the same level under the banner of the Spirit who unites us. That's why when it says value others more than yourselves, value others over yourselves in verse 3, it doesn't mean that I need to treat people like they're better than me. Like I need to whimper and pout at their feet because they're such great people. That's not what it's saying. It also doesn't mean that my estimation of their character um, increases because hu- humility isn't about just finding the good in other people because that still hinges how you treat people on how good they are. Humility doesn't say, well, he's a scumbag who litters and screams at his kids and yells racist things at sporting events, but he's kind to his dog, so I guess there's something good in him. I guess he's worthy to be loved because he can take care of his dog. That's not Humility doesn't place value on other people based on how much we deem them worthy of care. Because that's what the Pharisees did. They deemed only the the righteous to be worthy of care, and they totally neglected all the poor people they were supposed to care for. So if we think humility means just think less of ourselves, that's not what he means by think of others as better than yourselves. It also doesn't mean find the good in people. Because that just leads to another system of, of value and virtue over actual genuine care and concern. Humility doesn't do that. Instead, humility recognizes that we are all creatures in need of redemption and offers care regardless of our neighbor's worthiness. Worthiness isn't part of the equation in humility. The chocolate syrup should not view itself as more crucial to the banana split than the chopped nuts. 
It shouldn't. The ice cream shouldn't be debating with the banana about who is more integral. They're both integral. Rather, in humility, the ice cream should be helping the whipped cream stay cool. Even though the ice cream is arguably more important, it can keep the whipped cream fresh because it itself is cool. It can help the whipped cream. That's a stretch, I know. The chocolate syrup should be mingling with the bananas to create this sublime alchemy of blended flavors. Together, they're better than each other separate. The peanuts should be adding contrasting textures to the smoothness of the dairy. Without the peanuts, you're missing that delicious, tasty crunch. The smoothness of the dairy is nice, but it needs something to go with it. And the cherry on top should only be there not to say, I'm the best part of this whole thing. The cherry on top instead is there to draw attention to the beauty of the dessert as a whole. That's its role. The treat is incomplete without the cherry on top. But every other part is important too. In the same way, a church is incomplete without unity. The Philippian congregation was beginning to show the first signs of melting in their effective witness to the gospel. Paul appeals for them to make his joy complete by finishing off their already delicious flavors of compassion and generosity and faithful endurance. Those are tasty, delicious things they already have, but they need to finish it off with a fruit topping. We may differ on, on whether that fruit should be a cherry or a strawberry, but that's okay because we are selflessly committed to unity. We can have those differences of opinion, and obviously even in things bigger than what fruit goes on top of your ice cream. And so unity is the cherry that tops off any delicious spirit-filled body of, of believers. And unity is secured when every ingredient knows its own value as well as the extreme value of its fellow ingredients. You can't have unity unless we think less of ourselves, if we stop thinking we're so great, and start having the proper estimation of other people's values. We share one love, we share one mind, we share one purpose, we share one spirit. Without that unity, we have an incomplete faith. Without that unity, we have an incomplete joy. Without that unity, we have an incomplete witness. And without that unity, we are incomplete citizens of Jesus' kingdom. As we'll see in a couple weeks, it's Jesus who demonstrates that humility and care for others, which leads to unity greater than any anyone else ever has. It's his model we follow, not ours. And so, even though we're all kind of nutty and all a little bananas, we cannot split. We cannot, <clears throat> we cannot desert our commitment to unity, humility, and communal care. And since I can't think of an ice cream-related pun... Let's just finish in prayer. (laughs) Jesus, thank you that in you, we have all the bond we'll ever need. And I pray that we would be more and more united in you, that we would continue to lay down differences, minor differences of opinion, and be like-minded in the things that really count. That is you, your kingdom, and advancing your gospel. Jesus, I thank you for the unity that we have as brothers and sisters in you. Help us to be humble people who know our true worth in you, that we are lowly creatures, but that we are together lowly creatures who are dearly beloved by you, our Father and our Creator. Father, I pray that our unity would would complete us, complete our service, complete our joy, complete our witness, and that it would draw other people in to know your glory and and to taste your, your, your deep love for each of us. I pray that you'd make us humble, and that you'd make us united in you. We pray these things in your, your name, Jesus. Amen.
I feel bad that I got all twisted up there. It made me uh it made me not say things like I wanted to as clearly, but I think you get the picture. Um the banana split thing is a bit of a stretch, but unity is the thing, is the cherry on top that makes it all bind together. So strive for that. Alright, let's go down and enjoy some tasty banana splits. Right, Lois? Oh nuts. That's okay. I also really like food. Try to eat food at least once a day. It'll be fun to edit this sermon for the podcast. It's all over the place.